Okay, we are on air with Alexander McCurse in London and the great Mr. Robert Barnes. Mm. How are you doing, Robert? How are you doing, Alexander? I'm doing splendidly, and it's wonderful to be back on a program with Robert, if I may say. Yeah, I think England's uh, weather might be a little bit better. One of the few times England's weather is better than uh, than Vegas uh, around July. But the uh, but yeah, doing uh, uh, good, good. All right, I see that Alexander is sporting the Duran hoodie. So absolutely, it looks like it's summer. It's it's, 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 it's actually it's or? actually it's actually quite cool here at the moment, but quite sunny, and it's actually a nice, refreshing, pleasant day. Um, a couple of weeks ago, it was very very hot and sweltering, and really London isn't good when it's hot. It's very humid and uncomfortable. If you know New York, it's that kind of quality okay so let's get started we're gonna do uh something a bit different today it's gonna be a lot of fun and hopefully it'll be very interesting for everybody that is tuning in to watch this live stream on rockfin on odyssey rumble the durand.locals.com and youtube and of course everyone has to follow the locals channel of robert barnes and viva frey viva barnes law.locals.com did i say it correctly robert yeah exactly uh, it's almost as good as the duran.locals.com <laughs> all right and i have the link to that locals channel in the description box down below and i will add it as a pinned comment when the live stream is over so robert i pass it over to you so you can lay out the uh the scenario of uh mm. of today's discussion and let's get uh, rolling robert the floor mm. is yours so we're going to explore uh, an al different alternative interpretations of what took place in the Russian coup. Uh, you're looking at the four most commonly argued or articulated ones. And this is something that's going on in intelligence branches and state departments and think tanks all around the world. And, and how they interpret what took place is going to impact the actual future because they'll take proactive <coughs> and reactive steps in response to what theory they think is true. And so... The goal here is to bring in the audience to what what would that be like if you were sitting in, in that room listening to that conversation for the different arguments for different uh, interpretations of these events. When you go back through history and you can go back to some of the earlier uh, videos that the Duran has done on, on various histories that have happened in the past, you often find that either correct or incorrect analyses during these key junctures often shapes the future. So that's the relevance and pertinence and utility of this geopolitical strategic exercise. So what I'm going to do is we'll go through each of the four. I'll give the arguments for each of the four. Then the Alexes will give what are some of the ramifications or repercussions if those are true. And then some of their instinctive responses as if they were sitting around the table and we were all brainstorming it. What are some of the arguments in favor? What are some of the arguments against the probability of that interpretation being true? The four theories we'll discuss today, the big event we'll discuss today is the Russian coup that kind of turned out not to end up being a coup. And what does that mean? What does it mean for the Russian state? What does it mean for the Russian military, the, the Russian people, the conflict in Ukraine, Russia's geopolitical relationships, Putin himself? But what does it also mean for Ukraine? What does it mean for the West? What does it mean for the global South and the ongoing geopolitical struggle for which Ukraine is simply a flashpoint in a broader, bigger conflict? And the, uh, it, and the first one we'll talk about 
It, uh, the four will be in order and chronology that we'll cover. The first one, the most commonly discussed one, uh, the most commonly assumed one. Uh, and we'll give historical examples and cinematic illustrations of each of these conflicts to give some uh, uh, flourish to it, if you will. The first one is, was this just a military tactical dispute um, between different aspects of the Russian military simply expressed in the form of Prigozhin versus Shoigu? Uh, but reflecting broader historical examples, of which there are many, but the one we'll talk about is the MacArthur-Truman example that many Americans that with some broader, longer history will know. Um, and, the, and, the, and certain cinematic examples that may be reflected therein. Second will be, uh, to what degree was did Prigozhin just go a little cray-cray, uh, a little uh, live PTSD? Uh, with the, you know, the historic, there's so many historical examples that, of course, we made a famous movie uh, aggregating those life stories together, the case of Apocalypse Now and Colonel Kurtz. And one could note, Prigozhin even kind of looks like Marlon Brando's character from the movie. Uh, and then the third alternative we will discuss is, was this a Western plant? Here, too, there's too many examples to just be limited to one historical illustration. You could talk about Pinochet. You could talk about Mugabe. You could talk about Batista. You could talk about many over the last century alone where foreign governments have conspired to put a military coup leader on the throne of some adversary, uh, replacing someone they perceived as a prior enemy. Uh, there's you know good cinematic uh, examples of that as well, but uh, one that we can uh, reference as the Quantum of Solace has a little bit of version of that from the Bond films, of course. And then last but not least, the fourth alternative, was it a little Maskarovka? Was it uh, a Putin ploy? Uh, did Putin outmaneuver the West using the West's own biases against him? Did it look so real because it was real or did it look so real because it had to in order to succeed? And here we'll talk about a 19, uh, something that happened in the 1920s in the Soviet Union, uh, and that was actually made into a popular TV show when Vlad, little Vlad was a little bit younger, uh, called uh, Operation Trust. So the I'll make the arguments for each of the four, and then we'll get into a discussion as to the what they all mean, because these are the real conversations taking place around the globe as we speak by people who have the power to shape the future of the world. So it's going to be absolutely fascinating. We're going to go through all of these scenarios. Um, and it'll be very, I think by doing that, we will probably arrive pretty close to the truth, actually. And it will be an interesting process of discussion because actually the interesting thing is that a lot of the pieces are now starting to fall into place and we can get a clearer picture of what's happening. Now, can I just go back to a point that, Robert said, which is that there's one thing, there's one thing about what actually did happen. That's that's important. What people around the world think happened is at least as important, if not more so. And the same is true, by the way, in Russia itself. Now, one of the important clues as to how important it was that this the, 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 the outside world is given a picture by the Russians of what happened. The, the weight that they attach to that, 
the concern they have about it, that people around the world should not misunderstand it, is shown by the number of leaders around the world that Putin has been speaking to. He's spoken to Erdogan, he's spoken to MBS, he's spoken to the king of uh, Qatar, the, king, uh, the president of the UAE, notice the Arab leaders, he's spoken to President Raisi of Iran, he's spoken to Prime Minister Modi of India, he sent a top official to Beijing to brief the Chinese government directly, Deputy Foreign Minister Rudenko, he has been working the phone like crazy over the last couple of days. And so has his foreign minister, by the way, Sergei Lavrov. And they've been giving interviews. They've been giving discussions. They've gone out of their way to try and explain to people around the world, look, may not be what you think. This is what actually happened. Now, of course, whether the people that Putin is communicating with and trying to reassure, because that's what this is all about, are, in fact, reassured is an entirely different matter. But we'll come to that, too. I forgot to mention President Akayev of Kazakhstan and the president of Uzbekistan and all kinds of other people. There's even stories, which I simply cannot confirm, and they've not appeared on Putin's website, that Putin and Netanyahu have also spoken. So that gives you some idea of how much uh, work there is and how important perceptions are and how the Russians understand completely the point that Robert made. No doubt about it. I mean, I think that, uh, the, the, I mean, it, it reminds me of Russia house, uh, the Jean Le Carre novel <laughs> with, uh, the made into a movie with Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer of late 80 Soviet union, where at the end, both sides are <laughs> trying to plant a script on the other in order to explain what took place because people will respond based on what they think is true rather than what was actually true. Um, because what they think is true often shapes the world more than what actually happened. And so, so it, to look at the first one first, uh, the, you know, this was just an old fashioned military dispute of which, uh, throughout pretty much every major war, a major conflict, we can find historical illustrations or examples of, uh, American civil war, the American revolutionary war, for those that are focused on an American example, uh, at large aspects, of world war one, world war two. Of course, around the globe, throughout his world history, especially where there's a civil authority and a military authority, both in power. Um, but the military authority may be subject to the civilian authority. The, the most prominent and historical example of that is the MacArthur Truman example, which we'll get into in a second. But here it's just that the that some of the fill in material for this, this arguments for this would be that Putin uh, has always had a little bit of a political vulnerability in Russia amongst uh, hardliners, the more militaristic, macho, you could even say uh, muscular, macho wing of the Russian political electorate, going all the way back to his first election, where his main opposition was either the Communist Party or this big prominent general at the time that many thought would at, may beat Putin in the lead up uh, to those early elections to his rise to power. Mm -hmm. And that still today, there's a wing of Russian military mm -hmm. thought. Uh, you reflected in a good number of their bloggers on the Ukrainian war, that uh, see that think that Putin's mistake was not being going in earlier, uh, all the way back to 2014, 2015, that he let it uh, uh, sort of sit asunder all this time, that he's been too generous in his approach, that he's too peaceful oriented, that he looks for more diplomatic solutions and the evidence and that this is sort of the background for this potential military tactical conflict 
coming out on a political stage and that, uh, that that he really went in with a military feint, hoping that he got a peace deal, that the evidence for this would be Putin citing that he did, in fact, believe he had a peace deal, both in uh, Minsk and then again in Istanbul, that he was citing to the African leaders on their tour, uh, showing that there was initials, he claimed, above the Ukrainians, that they had the reason why they had withdrawn, the reason why they had gone in, and the reason why they had withdrawn was for this. Of course, again, this could be Putin playing to his audience, but that under this theory or interpretation, he wasn't really even prepared for a full-scale military conflict, that he's still playing the political angles with the conflict, and this disappoints, frustrates aspects of the Russian political community, and in particular, the hardliners within the Russian military. Mm-hmm. And that so Wagner comes in, uh, has some high-profile, prominent success, and so that Prigozhin, in this case, is chosen to be the representative of these hardline interests who see a long-standing government bureaucrat in Shoigu as not the military man to keep to take command and be more aggressive, uh, that uh, sees uh, in Shoigu's key allies, people that are hurdles and obstacles, see them as, as either political or actually corrupt, and that Russia could be winning the war much better if they were just did more like Wagner. Wagner, uh, Wagner, depending on your pick, depending on where, where you are in the world. It's not how to pronounce it. And in this context, Prigozhin's not crazy. Prigozhin's just MacArthur. Uh, except, you know, he didn't have MacArthur's reputation, and MacArthur didn't actually come back home to Jacksonville and say he was marching on D.C. Uh, for those that don't know that the history, uh, uh, after World War II, our greatest hero who hadn't come home yet from World War II in America uh, was General Douglas MacArthur, who was seen as being victorious uh, against Japan in the Pacific theater of the war. Uh, he didn't come home because he ran the occupation of Japan. During this time period, uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the communist civil war, uh, or Chinese civil war with the Chinese communists under Mao was fully aflame. And MacArthur was constantly trying to help Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek Ultimately, unsuccessfully, uh, Chiang Kai-shek flees to Formosa that you know, we now know as Taiwan. Uh, and uh, we, the West, America in particular, will pretend that that's the Chinese government for a couple of decades, uh, the tiny little island of Taiwan. But uh, in the interim of all of this, U.S. troops are present uh, or in part, uh, but they're mostly present based in a big presence in Japan. In Korea, there had been an agreement that neither side would cross the 38th parallel as a solution to the end of World War II. The North Koreans are communists. The South Koreans are propped up, arguably, by a questionable government of the West, but uh, that's a historical debate. Either way, the North Koreans decide to go into South Korea. Uh, there was a, actually a famous British spy who ended up being, uh, became a British spy, who ended up being arrested and taken to uh uh, China during this time period would only be outed as a British spy decades later. Uh, he was the guy that outed that they were spying on the KGB or the actually the GRU through uh, the under, under tu- underground tunnel in Berlin and things of this nature. But it's one of those ancillary uh, points about the Korean War and the Korean conflict escalates as we, the U.S., enter to push the North Koreans out of South Korea. As part of that, MacArthur, always a brilliant military tactician, uh, did things that no one else thought could be done. And because the North Koreans thought they couldn't be done, they weren't adequately defended. 
and he started to be successful pushing the North Koreans back towards the Chinese border. Now, here he was not supposed to go north of the 38th parallel. He did. And he promised Truman, don't worry, China won't get involved. The Globally, there was concern that the U.S. was about to start World War III and cross into China. There were many on the militaristic, muscular side of American foreign policy after their victories, as they saw it, in World War II, that America was the military dominant power in the world. We, now, we had nuclear weapons. It was time to use that military dominant power to shape the world as we saw fit, and time to get rid of, especially time to get rid of the commies. Patton wanted to march on Soviet Union right at the end of World War II. Uh, they partially, you know, pushed him aside, and then he died under what some people consider questionable circumstances to this day. So uh, MacArthur uh, clearly had already been caught before illicitly helping Chiang Kai-shek try to get it back into China, and and, and he just believed. Uh, you could say sincerely, like Curtis bombs away LeMay, uh, that now is that we got power, we might as well use it. Uh, that you know, we are the victors. Uh, let's uh, get some of the spoils. And in this context, the spoils wasn't always American military empire in the minds of these generals. It might have been in the minds of the Dulles brothers, the CIA, and the State Department at the time. Uh, but the it was to purge the world of communists uh, and to put the Chinese back in and Mao back in their place. And so he lies to Truman and says, don't worry, everything I'm doing will not lead to China entering the conflict. And then it became apparent that he was going over the border, doing other things that was bringing China into the conflict and that China was coming into North Korea. Uh, and, uh, and the problem was McGregor just ignored Truman. Uh, Truman was, had barely won, well, was thought to have was going to lose the 1948 presidential election. Maine became vice president at the last minute under FDR, became president because FDR died in office um, and was was thought he was getting killed in 1948, faint won one of the most famous upsets in American political history. The Republican Party was enraged and decided to hang foreign policy around him. That's when a lot of the red baiting takes new aims. Its indirect aim is uh, Harry Truman himself. And this is after... Who lost China became a big debate uh, because of China going communist uh, during this time frame, and they wanted to hang that on Harry S. Truman. And in the militaristic wing, Curtis LeMay, Douglas MacArthur, MacArthur would later dispute this, but Truman said he had no doubt MacArthur wanted to use nuclear weapons. There is no doubt Curtis LeMay wanted to use nuclear weapons. When he became the vice presidential candidate in 1968 with George Corley Wallace, he couldn't keep his mouth shut about how much he wanted to use nuclear weapons. Wallace begged him to please, whatever you do, don't talk about nuclear weapons. And the main thing he talks about is nuclear weapons. He goes, we got them, we got to use them. Um, this was the mindset, the mentality. And so in, in, in 1951, MacArthur had a huge armed forces under his command. And Harry Truman was not well respected or well regarded. So the question would be, what happened if MacArthur just didn't obey Truman's orders? The Joint Chiefs of Staff, Omar Bradley, was concerned about giving orders to MacArthur that he might disobey. He goes, what happens if he realizes he just disobeys us and does it anyway? What are we going to do about it? He's got all these troops that love him under his command. He's got a huge number of Americans that love him. Harry Truman decided to bite the bullet call, uh, and told MacArthur, announced it to the press before he told MacArthur, uh, MacArthur, you're fired. You're coming home. And uh, MacArthur accepted it. 
but he came home to a big parade and then gave a lot of speeches bashing Harry Truman. They would argue in public for the next decade plus. So under this interpretation, Prigozhin is not necessarily the person himself, but maybe the figurehead of different groups within the Russian military and the Russian populace who are like, Putin is too soft on this. And the problem is Shoigu. Uh, the problem are the people connected to and affiliated with Shoigu. We got to purge those elements and that Putin wasn't paying enough attention. And so that a desperate, dramatic effort to force Putin's attention uh, by taking this uh, little trip, this what he called this little march for justice toward Moscow, uh, wasn't necessarily intended as a meaningful coup, but was intended to get attention to fix Russian foreign policy uh, as a effort by the ultra hardliners to gain a little bit more of a foothold, to have more of the aggressors within the Russian military gain more control, and in their minds to purge the more corrupt bureaucratic aspects of the Russian military operation and make Putin respect the more hardline aspects of his own population. That's one interpretation of what took place, the historical example being the MacArthur-Truman example of which uh, there's been a range, I mean, you can find a range of uh, documentaries and others about it uh, that was probably the most analogous example. The only difference, again, being Prigozhin was not on the scale of MacArthur, and MacArthur didn't actually try to, you know, march on Washington. Uh, the probably the best cinematic version of this would be Seven Days in May, uh, that where the U.S. military is working to conspire against the elected president because they think he's too weak. All right. So, uh, what do you guys think? Right. Well, I think there is a lot. Of, there is a lot into this, and I think before we discuss the existing events, I think it's useful to actually look at how President Putin became Russia's leader during the events in 1999, because it does show that he has to take the military very, very much into account. He can't just ignore the sentiment of military leaders. And the reason I say that is because the military was instrumental in bringing him to power in the first place. Now, this is not a very well understood um, episode. Putin himself has rarely discussed it. And what he said about it has been very interesting, but hardly informative. But he came to power, Putin came to power as a result of a power struggle. Now, what had happened is that Boris Yeltsin was the president of Russia. He was um, deeply compromised. There were powerful forces around Russia that wanted him out. There was, uh, he had been deeply humiliated the previous year in 1998 as a result of the financial crisis that took place in that year, the devaluation of the ruble, the collapse of the banking system, the wiping out for the second time in less than a decade of people's savings. And of course, on top of the deep economic crisis, there was an almost universal feeling in Russia that Yeltsin had led Russia into extreme humiliation. He'd made Russia subservient to the West. He'd lost Russia its superpower status. And he'd allowed corruption to get completely out of control and was himself in some way involved in that corruption. And nearly all of those allegations, by the way, were true. So the military were already unhappy with, Putin, with Yeltsin by this point. And then, of course, there was a crisis in Yugoslavia. And the United States and the native powers began to bomb Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia, Serbia, being, of course, a traditional friend of Russia's. And the military were extremely angry. 
and the most important official within the military at that time was the chief of the general staff, a man called General Kvashin, who was a very strong hardliner. Now, what happened was Putin, uh, sorry, Yeltsin was at odds with his prime minister, Yevgeny Primakov, who had to some extent been forced on him by the Duma the previous year. Primakov wanted to take a hard line over Yugoslavia. Yeltsin, who still felt that he needed the support of the United States, managed to manoeuvre Primakov out of office. And he sent his previous associate, a man called Viktor Chernomedin, who had previously been prime minister, to Yugoslavia, where Chernomedin basically persuaded the, the Serb government to back down, to accept, in effect, American terms. Now, the military, led by Kvashin, were very, very angry. They sent troops from Bosnia into Kosovo, and it's now acknowledged and well understood that this was done without informing Yeltsin in advance. So here you have an instance of a senior military officer with the backing of the rest of the military making an extremely strong position, statement, if, if you like, um, a decisive intervention in foreign policy, not just without getting permission from the president, but in effect contradicting the president's policies. And <clears throat> a huge power struggle then followed because it was clear that Yeltsin was losing his grip on the situation. And it eventually, out of this power struggle, a relatively unknown official, the head of the FSB, the Internal Security Agency, Vladimir Putin, was suddenly appointed acting prime minister of Russia. Now, it's been extremely complicated. We know that on one previous occasion, Yeltsin asked um, Putin to become prime minister. Putin initially said no. We know that Putin was extremely worried and frightened at that time and was afraid that he might be arrested. He's actually said that. He was at risk of arrest and he was at risk of being arrested alongside his entire family. So that gives you an idea of how tense the situation was at that time. But what has gradually emerged and the most plausible interpretation of these events is that the military told Yeltsin, whose term as president was about to end, that he'd lost the support of the military, that he had to go, that if he tried to stand for an unconstitutional third term, the military would not support him, and nor would the security services, and that if he agreed to go peacefully and appoint Putin acting prime minister, putting Putin in a position to take over the military, the security services, the powers that were manoeuvring um, Yeltsin out, would basically grant him immunity from prosecution. And that appears to have been the deal that was done. As I said, this is an opaque affair. We don't know the exact facts, but the result was that Putin became acting prime minister in the summer of 1999. 
effectively the leader of the country. And then, of course, at the new year, Yeltsin himself stepped, stepped down and Putin became acting president. And then the very first thing that Putin did as acting president was that he attempted to sack General Sklashin. He He wanted to get this man who played this oversized role, this very powerful role in military affairs, out of the political scene. So he tried to sack him. Kvashin refused to be sacked. And the military backed Kvashin. And Putin had to back down. Now, this is a forgotten incident, but it gives one a sense of how weak Putin's position was at that time. He had the oligarchs against him. They were unhappy that, you know, their protector Yeltsin had been pushed out. And he had he relied on the support of the military, but he was in danger not of having the military supporting him, but of becoming their prisoner. And somehow or other, one way or another, and this is perhaps Putin's greatest political achievement, he managed to assert control. He eventually got all the oligarchs out. You know, he got rid of Yeltsin. He got rid of all the other oligarchs, Berezovsky, <laughs> all of the others. They were all pushed, pushed away. Khodorkovsky, of course, was eventually arrested. So he was able to bring that side of the political system under control. He did eventually, some years afterwards, manage to get Kvashin himself sacked and bring his own people into the military. And over time, he was able to assert his military authority, his authority as president of the country and bring the military firmly under political control. But that gives you an idea, because had Putin failed in this, there was a real danger in the early 2000s that the real power in Russia would not have been the constitutional legitimate authority, but it would have been a little bit more like Weimar Germany, where the real most powerful figure in the political system was not the president or the chancellor, but the chief of the general staff. And that was what happened in Germany in the 20s. And we came quite close to something rather like that being threatened at one point in Russia in the early 2000s. So it didn't happen. But of course, the very fact that it didn't happen, the very fact that Putin was able to assert his authority in the way that he did, nonetheless shows that he has to take sentiments within the military into account. He is a powerful force within Russian life, socially, as well as politically. And there have been instances when the military have criticized him. And the most famous one for me was during the siege of Aleppo in, 20, in 2016, when Putin was doing very much like he did, he's been doing over Ukraine, instead of giving the military, the Russian military and the Syrian military, an open route to capturing Aleppo, crushing the rebels, the jihadi rebels who were trying to besiege the city. He was constantly agreeing with John Kerry, the United States, with the United Nations, 
all sorts of ceasefires and humanitarian corridors into and out of Aleppo. As it turned out, it was all part of a very complicated diplomatic strategy intended to win over Erdogan, the, pre the Turkish president, and in order to stabilize the situation in Syria. But the military began to become extremely frustrated and they became, they made their anger very, very clear when the fact that there were these large concentrations of Syrian troops and Russian bombers focused on Aleppo gave an opportunity to ISIS to recapture the town of Palmyra, the ancient city of Palmyra, which the Russians had liberated before. And various Russian, retired Russian army officers came out and most unusually, they criticized Putin directly and in person for allowing the situation to arise. And it was fairly obvious that they were speaking for large numbers of officers within the Russian military. So I just wanted to provide that background because what Robert has actually outlined is not an impossible scenario. The military is a political, is a force in Russia to be reckoned with. And it's not to be discounted. Secondly, there is a community of people in Russia, and it's a large one. It's not easy to quantify exactly how large, but it does exist, which feels that Putin has been too soft. Too soft with the West. They don't like the fact that he constantly has been calling them partners, taken such a long time to acknowledge and accept the fact that relations between Russia and the West have been essentially broken for a very long time. They feel that he's too soft on economic policy, that he's been too soft towards the oligarchs. He's not really gone after them. He's not expropriated their wealth. He's not uh, nationalized all their properties, all their wealth. And always remember that people who are hardline on foreign policy tend to be hardline on these matters as well. They feel that he's been too soft on economic policy generally. They feel that they would prefer a more state-directed economy that he countenances. And of course, they've also been very frustrated by what they see as the slow progress of the war in Ukraine. And they are not interested, and they don't really understand or care about the fact that for Putin, as the president of Russia, just as it happened with Aleppo when he was making these complicated deals with Erdogan, Erdogan, Putin has to also consider international opinion, opinion in China, opinion in India, opinion in Africa, opinion in Latin American countries. What they see is a president who is too soft. And there is no doubt at all that Prigozhin, was able to a great extent to draw support from this, this, this mood. He was able to, he constantly criticized the weakness of the Russian military. He spoke about corruption. He never criticized Putin directly. But this is an important thing to understand about Prigozhin. I've said this on programs I've done in my channel, that many of his criticisms of the leadership of the Ministry of Defense, Shoigu and Gerasimov, he was attacking people who are clearly Putin's men. And though he didn't want 
to criticise Putin because he knew that would not go down well with the majority of the Russian population. These criticisms of Shoigu and of Gerasimov inevitably fed into criticisms of Putin himself, the Putin's entire war strategy and Putin's entire uh, handling, not just of the war, but of the conflict with the West. And of course, Prigozhin did have this big success in Bakhmut, which did elevate his status, and it did elevate his status within that Russian community of people who, as I said, have um, been critical of Putin in many respects. So we can see that there are certain points where you can look at what happened with Truman and MacArthur and you can see certain certain overlaps. And, you know, there are aspects of recent Russian history which can explain and clarify a lot of this. But there are also extremely important differences. Let's first of all begin with Prigozhin. Prigozhin is a civilian. He has no military background. He is in no conceivable way someone like MacArthur, who was not just a military officer, but at the time, America's most senior military officer, a war hero, a strategist of tremendous ability, of people who, well, suffice to say, uh, a, a biography I once read about him referred to him as an American Caesar. And, you know, Julius Caesar making comparisons with Caesar in terms of his military abilities. Prigozhin was nothing like that. I mean, he is a civilian. He's never had a military background. He's got a, a rather troubled history, a criminal past. He's been nine years in prison. Um, and that already differentiates him. And, of course, the Wagner organization, which Prigozhin led or leads, is not technically part of the Russian military at all. It is a separate organization. It is structured as a private military company. And the extent to which it really is that, the extent to which it's actually been controlled or was originally set up by, by the Russian intelligence community, which is, seems to be the overwhelming consensus today. Uh, I mean, that may be true, but hierarchically, organizationally, it is not a part of the Russian military. And in fact, the relationship between Wagner and not just the leadership of the Russian military, but in fact, as it turned out, the Russian armed forces in general, it's now clear, had become extremely bad. The Russian armed forces increasingly became angry with Prigozhin's um, ability to sort of raise up Wagner, to make it seem that it was the only organization that single-handedly was fighting Ukraine. There were tensions not just between Wagner and Prigozhin on the one hand and the Ministry of Defense on the other, but there were 
tensions between the Wagner organization and every other part of the Russian military establishment. Now, the other thing to say about um, MacArthur is, of course, he was part of the military chain of command. Prigozhin was not. And that was what made the difference, because, of course, MacArthur was not prepared to disobey an order from his constitutional commander-in-chief, who was the president of the United States, Harry Truman. Prigozhin, he's not in the same situation where Putin is his commander-in-chief. So that gave him the sense that he could carry out the mutiny that he did, or coup attempt that he did. What he failed to understand completely is that the rest of the military was not prepared to support him because they were loyal to the chain of command. They were loyal to Putin himself. They were loyal to the structures of the defense ministry. They deeply resented Wagner and Prigozhin anyway. And many military officers, no doubt, have their own opinions about the war. And many of them may be very critical of their opinions of, of the way in which Putin has conducted the war. But they are not prepared. They were not prepared to back Prigozhin and Wagner in this situation. And the other thing that happened when Prigozhin launched his coup, probably expecting that he would be able to get all that support from all of these people who have been so critical of Putin, is that he discovered that it wasn't just the military that wasn't supporting him, but that very important and very vocal section of Russian society, which has been ceaselessly criticizing Putin for being too soft, and which operates outside the military as well as within it. Even those parts that were outside the military, the, the bloggers, the commentators, the Russian Communist Party, all of them, in that crisis, they decided that they would back Putin against Prigozhin. In fact, it was extraordinary. There wasn't a single political leader of any importance, in fact, no, even, even political leader of no importance, nor a single newspaper, not a single blogger, not a single war correspondent that was prepared to support Prigozhin in that kind of crisis. And again, the reason was that there is this overwhelming concern in Russia. We're in a state of war. We cannot afford a crisis like this. We cannot afford to be divided amongst ourselves. Putin made an extremely strong and very clever speech in which he reminded all of these people about what had happened in 1917 and how dissension in the rear led to a collapse. And virtually every sector of Russian society said, not never again. That's, we're not prepared to do that. We're going to support Putin. We may have our criticisms of him. We may have our doubts about him. But fundamentally, he is the leader of our country. He is leading us in this war. We will unite and we will support him in this crisis. And that was why the coup collapsed. Prigozhin probably expected that some people, in fact, he definitely expected that he would get support. 
the important thing is that he didn't. But he might have had cause to think that he would. As I said, there has been a history, a recent history, of the military becoming involved in politics and of coming out with criticisms of Putin. There's undoubted frustration within the military about the pace of the military operation up to this point. There may be some military officers who are also unhappy with Shoigu, who is not a military man himself, but a civilian, despite being Minister of Defence. And in Russia, it's often the case that the Ministry of Defence is a military officer, not a civilian. But in the end, despite the existence of this, the, those criticisms, despite, in, and it perhaps in part because of that recent history of what nearly happened in the early 2000s, in the end, the political system proved to be completely solid. Now, what do you think in terms, like, we, we have some sense of the West misunderstood this as it was happening live, largely based on their misunderstanding of the dynamics that you discuss. Uh, lack of understanding of the depth of Putin's support within the Russian power structure, with Russian military's respect for the chain of command, the Russian population's strong embrace of Putin, that his popularity is the real foundation and arguably of a lot of his political power in Russia, that he's been consistently the most popular leader in the world on a year-over-year basis going on 20 years, almost a quarter century now. Um, very few uh, politicians anywhere have sustained a 60%-plus approval rating over a year. Uh, and this is a man who's managed to maintain that on average, sometimes slipping below, but not very for very long, over 60% approval amongst by pollsters who are hostile to the Putin regime within Russia, no less. And so we know the West, the West interpretation is Russia is weak. uh, Russia's military is chaotic. Putin's a tyrant. And then if you just got rid of Putin, it would return to sort of liberal democracy that of the Yeltsin era that was pro-Western, that would end the war, that the Russian people really hate the war, that they're fleeing the war, that they're deserting in mass, that uh, all of that stuff that they've been saying now for over a year and a half, they got to see, I mean, you got to see Michael McFall. Amazing that guy was ever ambassador to Russia. How embarrassing. Uh, you know, all these people go out and predict uh, Russia's right about to collapse. They're finally going to overthrow Putin and cheerleading this, celebrating this, welcoming this. And within 48 hours, they all got humiliated. I mean, they've been indirectly humiliated throughout the Ukrainian conflict, but it hasn't been as egregious and as clear in their short-term predictability they're like the opposite of the Midas touch. The, 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 there's been internal, there's been discussions here in the West mm-hmm. about how the intelligence agencies that were along the same, saying the same thing, what are they saying to justify their mistakes now internally? And how are they going to reconstruct this and react? Because as you point out, I mean, it, under this interpretation of events, and again, we're just exploring uh, uh, alternatives for everybody in the audience. The, uh, so if I talk about people thinking Putin's evil, it doesn't mean I think Putin's evil. I always get these things that, no, Barnes hates Russia. Blah, blah. But the, I would talk about the West, the Russian haters, et cetera, that had this distorted view of Russia, distorted view of Putin, and that led them to completely misinterpret what was happening on the ground as it was happening in live time. And in, under, under this interpretation, Prigozhin's being rational. He just misread the script. But he, may, but he had historical reasons 
to believe in his script. He had lifetime social media reasons to support uh, to support him, and maybe even had people in the Russian military that might have urged him on. I mean, there's an ongoing discussion about whether certain high-ranking officials were involved or not involved, whether they've been available or unavailable. At this point, that's all rumor. We have no idea what is or, or isn't true. Um, and, and and maybe that was even part of something else in, instead of you know joining in on a coup. But uh, how do you think the West uh, tries – how do you think they react to being so wrong about this? Does that lead anybody within the State Department, the intelligence operations, those buildings, uh, buildings uh, on the Thames in London, to, to, to reassess, say, you know what, maybe we've got something really wrong here. And in the same vein, I was fascinated that to this day and in a live time when people were witnessing it, if they took it at face value that Prigozhin might seize power somehow – uh, that the that the alternative to Putin in Russia is not Yeltsin, uh, 1990s Yeltsin. The alternative to Putin in Russia are more hardliners, yeah. uh, or the Communist Party. That it's more statist, more state. Uh, it, it's more aggressors. Uh, it, it's more uh, aligned with Russian, you know, a muscular military presence. It's aligned with being going further into Ukraine and using military power to resolve more problems, not fewer. And that that is against the West's supposed uh, self-interest is that replacing Putin will lead to a worse result. But, of course, that hasn't stopped them before. Replace Hussein. They had no understanding that it would be worse. You know, try to get rid of Assad. It would have been worse. Get rid of Gaddafi. It, it got a lot worse. Uh, get rid of, you know, the try to get rid of certain people within, within Afghanistan. It actually deteriorated in many respects. Try to intervene in South Vietnam. The whole country becomes communist. Uh, and get involved in North Korea. In Korea, North Korea now, you know, still obsessed and paranoid over us uh, with with you know nuclear armaments as their means of deterrence. The uh, so it hasn't deterred us in the past, but this seemed to be a glaring example of mm. don't don't you know, don't actually get what you what you supposedly want. Mm. But how much do they look at this and say, okay, hold on a second, if we take at face value what happened, this means the only people likely to stage a regime change in Russia are hardliners. Maybe we shouldn't support that anymore. Maybe that's not well advised. How much will that reconsideration even occur? And what will be their explication for being so badly wrong on such obvious time frame? Well, first of all, I think just to say that the only real opposition to Putin, the only opposition to Putin that counts and the only opposition that he takes seriously in Russia is not from those people who are called in the West the pro-Western liberals. They are they hardly count in terms of electoral politics. I mean, they're about you know between one and five percent. There are some very powerful oligarchs there lurking behind the scenes, but if I can put it like this, their names are known, and the intelligence and security services keep a very close eye on them. And most of them um, are now living outside Russia anyway. So I mean, you know, this is actually this war has actually weakened their positions still further and has redirected the flow of power, if you like, and economic power away from them. So Putin is not worried about those people so much. The people he does have to keep an eye on, the people he is worried about, are those who you could describe as the nationalist, patriotic wing of Russian politics and society, which extends all the way from the right including people who hanker for, you know, the restoration of the czarist system or something. There are some people like that, believe it or not. There are a few people of that nature, but, you know, people who are definitely on the nationalist right, 
all the way to what you might call the nationalist left, which is the Communist Party and its various agencies, which is not like the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. It's It may have its origins in the Soviet Communist Party, but its politics are very different. It is, for example, on extremely good terms with the church and it allows Orthodox Christian believers. So, you know, it, 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 it's a different kind of setup, but they are the people that Putin has to think about. And they are the people who, you know, write the comments and engage in the social media criticism and who read all these blogs and who, when Prigozhin and his men were fighting in Bakhmut, writing all the praise of them and all that sort of thing. So those people do exist. And you're absolutely right. If Putin were to fall under a bus tomorrow, you know, have a heart attack or die or something like that were to happen, most unlikely, but let's say it did, the people who... The, the people who would come to succeed him would almost certainly feel obliged to be more hardline than he. Um, they don't have Putin's authority and popularity, an authority and popularity that he has built up over two decades of power and successful management of Russia. I mean, you only have to visit the country to know how transformed it's been during his time. A new leader probably would not feel able to control these sort of hardline patriotic sentiments to the extent that Putin does. And that's, of course, always assuming that he didn't share these hardline patriotic sentiments, which, given the structure of the Russian political system, he most likely would. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's always a question with, with the West, be careful what you wish for. You might end up with someone a lot more a lot more difficult and a lot more dangerous than Putin himself. So that that's the that's the first thing to say about the first thing to say about this. But coming back to your first question about Western intelligence agencies. Will they revisit their thinking? I'm afraid I don't think they will. I think the problem is that they are now so invested in this image of Russia, as you know, this very unstable, weak, corrupt country, that they're going to take the diametrically opposite view of this event from the correct one, rather than see it as proof of the strength and solidity of Putin's position, of the fact that the entire military and political system is basically supports him in any kind of crisis, even in the kind of crisis that Prigozhin tried to engineer, which bursts like a bubble within just a few hours. They're going to insist on seeing it as proof of his weakness and of the instability and volatility of Russia. And that is going to encourage them to continue on the kind of course and with the kind of analyses that they have been making up to this point. And one of the problems, and this I have to say about Russians themselves, is that there is a fundamental cultural disconnect between the way the West reads Russian social media and the way that Russians do. Now, Alex has lived in Russia, so on this I think he's perhaps more expert than me. But what I think people don't understand about Russian Russians and the way that the Russians conduct their political debates is that they talk with an extreme frankness and directness 
which I suspect is to some extent a reaction to the enforced conformity of the Soviet era, but also is a cultural trait because it also existed during the Tsarist times, which is to say that you may say the most extraordinarily critical things. In fact, you need to do that in order to gain credibility there. If you praise the government and you praise the president, then you know you cut you are seen not as an honest person, but instead as a lackey. That's that's the sort of Russian cultural trait. Westerners see that and they don't understand that. And they take some of these criticisms and some of this language seriously. So you know they read blogs by people like Igor Girkin, otherwise known as Strelkov, very famous Russian commander in the 19, 2014 fighting in Ukraine, known to be on bad terms with Putin. They see how critical he is of the current Russian political system. They assume that he is going to support an insurrection against it because of the way he writes about it. And then the insurrection comes, and what does he do? He condemns it, he calls it a stab in the back, and he backs the legitimate president. <laughs> because that's not Gilkin being inconsistent. It is Gilkin being Russian. <laughs> he, he can be very, very critical, abusive even, say the most outrageous things, but it doesn't follow at all that he is disloyal to Russia, to its political or uh, constitutional system, or that he will support any kind of mutiny, insurrection, or revolution in any way. So I think, as I said, Western analysts read these things. They don't understand them. They imagine that there's much more volatility and instability there in the system than there really is, because they take a lot of what's said in Russia for face value, which... I long ago came to realize, you know, I've been following Russian affairs for 20 years. I long ago came to realize you shouldn't do. I don't know what Alex thinks about this, by the way. It's, it's interesting what you said uh, there, Alexander, because on the one side, you, you have these officials in, uh, in D.C. and in the U.K., and, and they're seeing these, these, uh, these social media posts and these blog posts criticizing Putin, and they say, okay, Putin is done. There's, there's a movement brewing that's criticizing him. We've got him now. His government is fragile. On the other side of things, you have the same people in D.C. and London who are constantly yelling about how no one can criticize Putin. There's no free speech. You can't say anything bad about Putin. When you live in Russia, you understand that uh, the majority of media, especially independent media, is critical of Putin. And they openly criticize the government on many levels, not only international. It's not, it's not always about international uh, affairs either. I mean, they criticize the Putin government on domestic issues, as is the case with every country. People living in the country are concerned about their quality of life in the country, and they criticize the government on various issues with, uh, with regards to, to life in Russia. But when push comes to shove, everyone knows outside of Russia and inside of Russia, 
the job that Putin has done is is the best job that any world leader has done in the past 20 years. And that is if you go by the book, if you look at the numbers as to where Russia was 20 years ago, compared with every other country, specifically in the, the collective West, you can't compare it. Putin has taken Russia from a, a, a very low level on the brink of collapse after Yeltsin, and he's turned it into the, the Russia that, that we see today. So, yeah, you're, you're right, but it's, it, it's a type of, of yeah. strange dynamic where, on the one hand, they, uh, they think that Russia is on its knees because of the, of the posts and the, and the chatter and the blogs that, uh, that are coming out. And then on the other hand, they're saying, well, you know, Putin's this authoritarian dictator and no one can, can speak freely. But go, going back to what Robert uh, said in the opening of, mm-hmm. uh, of the video with, with the first point being, is this military against military? I, I would say in, in a way, yes. Mm-hmm. Because even though Wagner, as you explained uh, so well, Alexander, Wagner is, is not really a part of the Russian military, but it, it does operate in a gray zone with mm-hmm. the the Russian military it does have this type of mm-hmm. a French foreign legion type of uh, spin to it. But, you know, if if Prigozhin, his narrative was I'm going to march to Moscow and I'm going to get rid of Shoigu and that's going to make Putin more powerful. I'm going to give Putin more power. That's what he was selling people on. In in summary, pretty much that was his uh, mm-hmm. his selling point. But but if you if he actually completed his task, say he did make it to Moscow and say he made it to the Ministry of Defense and he got Shoigu and he threw Shoigu out and he said, okay, Mr. Putin, now I'm giving you more power. That doesn't give the president of Russia, the Supreme Commander-in-Chief, more power. It completely neuters him. How could he be president anymore when <laughs> the guy that he chose is is being overthrown by, by some some guy who heads up, allegedly heads up, this, this PMC group. That's it. He's done. He is done. Putin is done. If, and if it wasn't Prigozhin who would then take over for Putin, one of these other hardliners that you were talking about would absolutely smell blood in the water. And he yeah. would be like, oh, boy, now we've got Putin. And now is my chance to come in and, uh, and take over. And another point that you were making, Robert and uh, Alexander, which I just want to throw out there, is... And maybe this is going to lead us to the uh, to the uh, apocalypse now. You know the 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 fact that maybe Prigozhin went went a little mad. Is who who was whispering these things to Prigozhin about certain people supporting you? Did Prigozhin make it up? Did he have these delusions of grandeur? And he, he thought, if I do this, then people will support me. Or were there elements, yeah. maybe oligarch elements? Maybe uh, people in the Russian government who are now just quiet and are not saying anything. Were there outside elements? Was it a combination of all these things that were whispering to Prigozhin, you know, yeah, go for it, man. Go for it. You can do it. If there's anyone that can do it, you can do it. You'll have all this power. You'll have all this control. Uh, get rid of Shoigu. I, I think that's that's an interesting thing to, uh, to, to think about. And one final point is that a lot of people overlook is Prigozhin knew how to manipulate social media. Yeah, there's a reason he was putting up all those posts. There's a reason he was framing everything he was framing, standing in the dark with uh, with the dead bodies behind him, which was a horrific image. But I think he understood how to play social media very, very well. Anyway, those are those are my thoughts, Roberts. 
Yeah. I was going to have one last question before we go to the second alternative, the the, the one you mentioned, uh, Alex, the, uh, the the madman theory. Uh, assuming he was acting with rational instinct, I think we've given some arguments as to how that could come about, that he knew Russian history, that he was watching the Russian media, that he was watching the Russian blogs. And as Alex mentions, maybe he was getting whispers, whispers from inside the Russian military, whispers from inside the from other Russian oligarchs, uh, uh, whispers from certain political actors, uh, maybe whispers from people who are operating on both sides, uh, and then maybe whispers from the West. Uh, that, you know, hey, by the way, if it goes south, we got a nice uh, Zelensky-style parachute for you uh, with guaranteed money. And the man that was a, the, the, that came out, you know, nine years out of a Soviet prison and built a hot dog stand into a, a billionaire movie chain and grocery stores and casinos and mercenary mm -hmm. operations, uh, you know, might have been, you know, egotistical enough to take the bait without being nuts. But in that, the last aspect that I thought was an interesting question on ramifications or repercussions for everybody around the globe is one specific to Putin, one specific to the global one. The specific to Putin one is, did Putin make a mistake in elevating Prigozhin and in how he handled Prigozhin? Uh, uh, again, we're operating under this theory of events. I you know, we'll get into the alternative theories. But letting him go for so long, using social media, being hypercritical of other people, not pulling his plug a lot earlier. Uh, well, this kind of refutes the idea that Putin gets everybody whacked that he doesn't like because, uh, you know, it's been pretty easy to whack Putin, Prigozhin, uh, by Putin. But did he make a mistake with Prigozhin? And then the bigger, broader, older historic question this has really brought to the fore as a matter of global geopolitical and military strategy. Are mercenary forces a bad idea? <laughs> uh, going all the way back, that's been a live debate. The in incentive is, hey, it's not our soldiers dying. They can get away with stuff that other our soldiers can't. They with they have political deniability. Uh, they have you know the they have certain function. You can pay them more money without it being direct taxpayer dollars. So you can get some really skilled people. You have a global mm -hmm. recruitment. Uh, place in this case, you also have you know jails you can recruit from. Um, but the downside is maybe they go AWOL on you. Uh, you know the it, it, whether it's joining Colonel Kurtz in the jungle or it's uh, their little march for justice on Moscow. Uh, that Wagner proves mercenaries are not a reliable force, and probably the one country that should be the most concerned with that would be the United States uh, with its Blackwater utility. This has been a long going. There's been TV shows like Damages and others that portray, you know, what would happen if the mercenaries took over? Uh, you know, it's the old little Baptist uh, one of the, uh, text. They used to put out these little comic versions of uh, persuasion. Uh, you know, I mean, and this is old days in the South growing up. So, you know, one of them was inside the Pope's hat at 666, if you find it, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Because these are old independent Baptist circles and what have you. But one of them was this man who built this wonderful safe and to, to, to keep his uh, uh, assets the most secure ever. And after he built the most perfect safe in the world, he woke up one day and everything was gone. And he couldn't understand it. It turned out the man who built the safe is the one who stole it all. And it was, you know, you can't store your uh, wealthly or you know, material earnings here on earth. You should store them with God. That was the point of the text. But to what degree does giving the mercen mercenaries this kind of power is that a bad and dangerous idea for civil democracies on a go-forward basis? And did Putin make a mistake either in putting Prigozhin in power or not criticizing him earlier under this sequence of events? 
I, I think the answer to the second question, and uh, which was going to lead us to the first one, but the second question is yes. I think Putin very, very much regrets having built up Prigozhin to the extent that he did. Now, when we talk about Prigozhin and we talk about Putin, I mean, I think we should be clear about this. I don't know what role Putin actually had in elevating Prigozhin in, to the extent that he did, but we're going to use Putin now as a meta name, if you like, for the Russian political and security system. Now, this brings us back to who is Prigozhin and what is Wagner. Now, Wagner, now here I can say I have this now from more than one source. Wagner was created in 2014 by the Russian military intelligence agency, the organization that we all know as the GRU, the GRU. It's not actually called that anymore. It's called the GU of the general staff, but let's just call it the GRU. And another security agency, which uh, is in, concerned with internal control um, and which in 2014 had still been part of the Ministry of the Interior, the Russian Ministry of the Interior, but is now reorganized separately as the National, uh, as the National Guard, the Russian National Guard. And the idea was this, the Russian military is very regulated under various constitutional and legal norms. It's not the case that Vladimir Putin can simply make an order and deploy it to, say, Mali or the Congo, wherever he needs to send it. Uh, so they needed something that they could send to these places, that could intervene in these places. They, Perhaps the event that crystallised it was that they needed an organisation that they could use to send special forces people into Donbass during the fighting there in 2014. That might have been what crystallized the understanding. So they created this private military company. They staffed it with officers, cadres, from the Russian special forces. And it was this private company set up by, as I said, the Russian intelligence community, controlled by them, or so they thought, and they'd be able to deploy it around the world as they needed, so that you know, if they needed Russian troops in Syria or the Congo or wherever, you could send them there. And as it's a private military company, Russia is not directly accountable for it. So it, it was a way of giving themselves plausible deniability when they intervened abroad, and at the same time, bypassing certain Russian laws. So they decide to set it up in this way, and they decide that they need a vehicle through which to run it. And here is this very useful and convenient man, Mr. Prigozhin, and his Concord company, which is providing food and catering services to the Russian Ministry of Defense and is known to be deeply patriotic and has all these connections with the Russian military because he's providing all these services, these, you know, food services and all the rest. And they say, well, why not approach him, have him set himself up as the, you know, the company, set up the company, bring in outside investors that will act as the commercial vehicle through which this group, the Wagner group, will operate. And that was how Wagner was established. And 
as we like to say in England, it seemed like a good idea at the time, in the sense that, you know, you had this very nice setup, you have a private company, you have Wagner, the Russian military in effect, the Russian government in effect controls it. If anything goes right, well, it works in Russian interests. If anything goes wrong, as happened in a famous incident in Syria, when some uh, Wagner troops crossed a river into US-controlled Syria and the US Air Force came and bombed them to pieces. Well, if anything goes wrong with them, well, you have plausible deniability. It's nothing to do with us. It's all a private military company. These are not actually regular Russian troops. So as I, it seemed like a good idea, except, of course, that you create a structure like this outside the normal chain of command. The ownership structures are opaque. The officers who run it, it's not clear where their orders are coming from. The troops, the people who are attracted to it, they don't know exactly where their loyalties are. And you set yourself up, in effect, for exactly the scenario that has happened. Because what apparently was happening is that Wagner was going around the world doing the business of the Russian Federation, but getting paid fees by, say, African leaders for what it was doing. That money was going to Prigozhin and his company. So he was doing a very, very attractive commercial business out of all of this, as were some of his investors. Some of the officers and some of the men were benefiting from it all as well. And over time, your grip the Russian authorities' grip on this organization became weaker and Prigozhin became more influential within it. And as a result, it started to slip out of control. Now, when it became clear around the middle, uh, around the beginning of this year that that is what was happening, uh, this is the point where I think Putin should have intervened and intervened clearly and decisively and brought in Prigozhin, had him meet with Shoigu, made clear to Prigozhin that this is unacceptable, uh, insisted to Prigozhin that Wagner had to be brought under the supervision of the Russian Ministry of Defence. That was the moment to have killed and ended this thing. Putin is a diplomat. <laughs> that is what he knows best. Never forget this. He's a diplomat and he's a lawyer. He tried to square the circle. He tried to talk people around, get them to work together as a team. The Battle of Bakhmut was underway. He didn't want to antagonize not just Prigozhin and Wagner, but that large part of the Russian population that were rooting for them. So he let the situation drift. <laughs> and we see what happens. And um, it, went, it went terribly wrong. Now, I tend to agree with the view that people have about mercenary companies that they are difficult, in, inherently difficult to control. If you know about, can I just say, I'm, this is, I'm now talking as a Greek, Byzantine history, the late Byzantine Empire, 
Uh, I mean, they basically ran out of men, but they still had quite a lot of money. And they um, hired lots of mercenaries to make up the army, the Byzantine army. And the mercenaries proved to be almost impossible to control. And some of them were seizing territory within the empire and the mercenary leaders were setting themselves up as chieftains. It was a disaster. And uh, Niccolò Machiavelli, who was one of the first people to criticise uh, uh, mercenaries, it's a famous passage in The Prince when he said that these people are not reliable. To some extent, he was influenced by that history and also by what was happening in the Italian states. What I will say is this. I think mercenary companies are inherently difficult to control and dangerous to the extent that they can be controlled at all it's easier done in a very strong constitutional and legal system such as has existed in the united states so you know once upon a time say in the 1980s I wouldn't have been too worried about Blackwater, for example, or all of these companies in the United States. Today, I think with the erosion of constitutional and legal structures in the United States, maybe they are becoming more dangerous. In Russia, it's the opposite trajectory. Constitutional and legal norms are becoming stronger. But the country is only 20 years away from a profoundly lawless period in its history. And it's extremely unwise in light of that to have organizations like Wagner operating around and behaving as Wagner did. And to be frank, given the background, I think this was a disaster waiting to happen. Well, that transitions into the second question and one of the super chats, which was that this interpretation, alternative theory or hypothesis of what took no. place, is that Prigozhin's behavior was too irrational for a reasoned man to engage mm. it. The idea being that Prigozhin knew too much about, knew Putin too well, knew Russia too well, knew the Russian military well enough that he could not have imagined marching a few thousand troops on Moscow was going to lead to the desired result, but would more likely lead to the annihilation of him and his troops. And that he must have either tricked or deceived his troops to get there, or they must have shared in his Colonel Kurtz-style madness. Here, the cinematic reference is to the movie Apocalypse Now, where Marlon Brando, you know, however it was, I remember about midway through May, looking at Prigozhin, it was like, all he needs now is a little more camera angles, and he's got Marlon Brando nailed down. Maybe add about 100 pounds, and boom, he can go. Um, the, you know, with the head thing going on and all that jazz. The, uh, and of course, for those who don't remember, you know, the, the movie was based in part on real historical characters from Vietnam, the Green Beret case, and some other examples of, uh, of you know, Americans just going nuts uh, in Vietnam, that, that there was no explanation for why they did what they did other than insanity. Uh, and of course, the longer, uh, broader historical example of Lord Conrad going into the heart of the jungle uh, to describe, which was the real experience of a journalist who thought he was going on a Belgium missionary crusade only to discover the utter horrors of what that looked like as the ghost of King Leopold continued to haunt that region. And in this, in this storyline, it's just the PTSD. The difference is it's the head of a, a, a big missionary unit who gets the PTSD, and maybe some of his high-ranking commanders are locked in with him. That six months of the Battle of Bakhmut, uh, one of the most brutal day-to-day, grinded-out battles 
uh, in modern warfare in almost a century since World War II in many respects uh, of, of just block for block for block uh, trying to obtain uh, power and ground and having to fight like madmen to get it created a madman. And that that's why he couldn't see things through clearly, couldn't see things through sanely. And that's why he did what he did. He had just a psychotic break that he only got out of when his uh, while Wagner troops were outside the outskirts of Moscow and the reality set in, uh, somehow broke through to get uh, Colonel Kurtz out of the jungle. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on the problem? Uh, uh, sorry, Alex, what, what, uh, what do you think the thoughts are on uh, the probability of that second hypothesis that he just went that Prigozhin and it, yeah, you'd say some of his commanders. Why are they? Why are all these troops going with him? Just went batshit insane. Well, I think there is uh, documented. Uh, I don't want to say evidence, but uh, there are statements made from various uh, Russian officials and Russian uh, military uh, commanders who have said that uh, Prigozhin did mis- mislead many, if not a majority, of the Wagner uh, troops. He told them either that they were going to be marching north towards Belgorod in order to protect, um, I'm sorry, that they were going to be um, marching to Moscow in order to force the the Ministry of Defense to send them to Belgorod in order to uh, prevent the terrorist attacks there from uh, the Ukraine military, or they were marching to, uh, to Moscow, north to Moscow, so that, as, uh, as we said earlier in the video, to hand more power to Putin, to get rid of Shoigu, in order to strengthen Putin. And so there were a lot of, uh, of Wagner soldiers who did buy into this manipulation. And, and that's what it was. He, he did mislead um, many of these uh, Wagner uh, troops. But uh, the PTSD thing is something that me and Alexander talked about Many, many months ago. And I think there is truth to that. I mean, my own my own feeling on Prigozhin is that he was indeed uh, trying to either remove Putin or sabotage Putin in one way or another, in one sense or another. Even if he was targeting Shoigu, in essence, he was targeting Putin. And so I think that that he is without a doubt uh, a traitor to to his country. But saying that two things can be true at the same time. And I do think that for someone to be in Bakhmut for six or seven or eight months or however long he was in Bakhmut or going in and out of Bakhmut, I think would drive uh, any anybody absolutely mad. And I think that's what happened with, with Prigozhin to a certain extent. I think this was someone who's probably already a little, a little out there and probably already a little drunk with power. And then he comes to Bakhmut and he sees this scale of war that, from what I understand, <clears throat> very few people have uh, have witnessed before this artillery uh, war of attrition. And he's right there in Bakhmut. And not only is he seeing this on a daily basis, he's he's posting this on social media. He's creating entire narratives yeah. about what's happening in Bakhmut. And these narratives that he's creating are getting a ton of traction. Yeah. I mean, he, he is the center. All of a sudden, here's this, this, uh, this, this, this ex-convict who has become a billionaire who somehow managed to, uh, to get in good with the Russian military and then to be in charge 
of this, uh, or at least to be the public face of this uh, mercenary uh, force. And here he is now, the center of the most important conflict in the world. And, and, and I think all of these things, when you put them together, I think turned him absolutely crazy. And drunk with power, he miscalculated, he went a little, uh, a little nuts. I think you combine all of these things and, and maybe some of the whispers as well. Maybe some of the people that were behind the scenes understood this and they know how to manipulate people and they understand the psychology of people. And they said, okay, now we've got this guy. We can send him on his way. It could be something like that. I, I think I think this is a very possible and plausible situation. And, and sometimes when you looked at Prigozhin's eyes and you, and you watch the videos, you can tell that this guy is, mm-hmm. is not the man he was before the conflict. When, if, if you were to look at two uh, photos or two videos side by side, you could see that he had been a very changed man. Yeah, Alexander, uh, what are your thoughts in terms of, you know, the, the, the thesis that he went a little crazy? And then as a policy matter, how do states, uh, one that, you know, people should be on the lookout for it, of this risk, given the historic nature of, of this blowing up in all kinds of crazy ways, properly cinematically portrayed here in the United States also, as Dr. Strangelove, how yeah. could the world fall apart? One crazy colonel just goes a little nuts uh, because he uh, can't consummate a relationship one night. He decides that it's part of a communist conspiracy to contaminate his precious bodily fluids and decides to launch a nuclear war over it. Yeah. And only Stanley Kubrick could come up with it. What people don't know is almost every character in there was based on an actual colonel or general in the U.S. military at the time. Um, and that so the day and then how war can just run ravage in the modern era, like World War One portrayed it, you know, famously with the you know recently uh, re- redone movie of, of the World War One from the German perspective, of just how in mechanized warfare of the kind you saw in the Battle of Bakhmut, it just uh, you know trench warfare. We're back to that in many respects can literally just drive men mad uh, in ways that become dangerous to not only the war effort, but back home to the domestic population, as may have been evident here. How do you avoid that? Is it a mistake to have civilians like Prigozhin on the front lines to begin with, um, who are not trained soldiers, who've gone through this 20 or 30 times before, not well-equipped, not ready to handle it? And we hear professional American mercenaries coming back uh, saying this is the most horrendous conflict they've ever been a part of. They said it's just it, it, it's the mind F of a century. And these are trained people that have been in some of the most horrific war zones in the world in the last two decades. And they're like, nothing compares to being on the front lines in Ukraine. Um, that the, the nature of modern warfare is such that this is a real risk for every military and every society, but maybe amplified by the combination of private citizens involved with mercenaries on the front lines. And also, as uh, as Alex mentions, the social media world, where now you can play to your narcissistic alternative Colonel Kurt self and build up an image of yourself that is completely disconnected from all forms of reality that then create the possible overthrow of a nuclear power. Or at least yeah. you think you could be participant in it. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on that theory? Well, I, I, I'm going to say straight away. I think I think Alex and yourself have got have made uh, actually incredibly valid points. I too think. I mean, I, I've changed my mind many times on this, but I've finally come to a settled view that he did go 
more than slightly mad. I mean, I have met people, people who've done crazy things. I'm sure you've probably met similar people. It's part of the work one does as lawyers. And the thing to say about madness is that it creeps up on you. It's not something that often comes, you know, just happens. Um, it, 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 the more bizarre the circumstances in which you function, the more bizarre and unusual your behaviour is, and there is nothing more likely to make your behaviour unusual than being involved in a slaughter like the one that happened in Bakhmut. And Bakhmut was an absolute slaughter. Well, the more that goes on, the more it distorts your personality, the more you lose uh, connections with uh, the world around you, the more you become oversensitive perhaps to what you see as slights, the more you develop feelings of grandiosity and megalomania and paranoia, you know, Shoigu and Gerasimov, they're out to get me. So if my soldiers are dying, it's not because the fighting is very intense. It's not because things aren't going exactly as I would like. It's it's not because the Ukrainians are fighting and it's because these people are out to get me in Moscow and I must, you know, push back on them. So, I mean, I, I, I think that there was a major aspect of, if you like, Colonel Kurtz in all of this. And how do you stop it? How do you prevent it happening? Well, the first thing you do is you absolutely should not allow in a military situation, a battle like Bakhmut, somebody who has no training in war. I mean, soldiers are very carefully and thoroughly trained for a reason, because the intensity of modern war places such an extreme burden on them. I mean, and even soldiers suffer from, well, not even, many soldiers suffer from PTSD and psychological problems, despite all that training. And the other thing is that people who are faced with this sort of thing need to be exposed to it, should only be exposed to it for very, very limited periods. And this again happens in militaries. I mean, uh, soldiers are taken from the front lines, they're sent to the rear, they're left to recover before they're sent again. The amount of time uh, um, a combat soldier is allowed on the front lines in a modern army is actually quite limited. Prigozhin was insisting on being there week after week, month after month. This battle went on for months. Of course, it had a disastrous effect on him. But you can only do, you can only control this. You can only avoid these sort of extreme psychological problems, which I think Prigozhin did suffer from. And as I, said, I think as a result of that, he began to lose, he began to develop delusions of grandeur. He saw this enormous media support he was getting, it's social media support, and he took it for being more real than it was. He had these issues with the Ministry of Defence. He thought that they were really out to get him because megalomania and paranoia are two sides of the same thing by the way. That, that's also something I discovered long ago. Um, and he undoubtedly did think that he was in a much stronger position politically than he really was, because 
Well, he was at the center of this tremendous war. He was at the center of this tremendous battle. He, the whole world was hanging on everything that he was saying. He was having to accept and see all this terrible fighting all around him. So, of course, that proved how important he was. And going back to the fears that people had about MacArthur, people also talked about MacArthur's megalomania. MacArthur, in my opinion, had no megalomania, but Prigozhin undoubtedly did, because he was there in the center of the battle. He had all of these armed men around him. He imagined himself to be in a much stronger position than he really was. And by the way, we have some independent confirmation of this. When Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, talked to Prigozhin, in order to try to get him to sort of stand out, which he eventually did. He said that for the first hour, he found Prigozhin in this euphoric, intoxicated, exalted mood. He was apparently swearing continuously. He was obviously not functioning as a normal person would do. So... It's not surprising that all of this go was, was, you know, happened to him. But the only way in the end that you can avoid this thing happening completely, and I'm afraid what I'm going to say is going to sound um, incredibly unworldly, uh, but the only way you can avoid it is by avoiding war entirely, by ending war. Until war ends, I'm afraid people will have break breakdowns, they will have P PTSD, some of them will lose control. Some of them will break in the kind of way that Prigozhin did. It's an inevitable aspect of war, and it is a disastrous and potentially disastrous one. Modern armies in modern, strong, constitutional states have ways, as I've just said, of controlling this up to a point. But an organization like the Wagner PMC with Prigozhin himself in effect in charge of what he was doing, in charge of himself, properly speaking, accountable to no one. Well, you saw where he could lead. The, uh, you know, I think this also highlight, this is our first hypothesis highlighted mm -hmm. the concerns over modern mercenaries involvement in warfare for major States. This one, I think also highlights the social media role in modern warfare yeah. that what happens when you take the algorithmic manipulative qualities that tech that technology was designed for people can you know look at documentaries like the creepy thin line and other things like that that basically this technology was designed to play on the create anxieties to play on paranoias to play into narcissism uh, that it enhances all of those traits designed to make it addictive in the process that that's what all this social media is for all the, you know, one more like, one more like, one more share, one more share, you know, that whole mindset to the degree that we've seen an explosion in anxiety and mental illness amongst what you particularly young women in the West related to their use of social media, that this highlights the dangerous aspects of that. I was surprised they allowed him to use it as much as they did during this conflict, but it should highlight things for anybody going forward, aside from the ongoing problems and risks war poses just for being war itself. Now, moving into the third hypothesis, what's the probability 
that some uh, uh, some Russia House type actors were involved in all of this at some level, that they might have been whispering in Prigozhin's ear or other co- high-ranking commanders in, in Wagner who participated in this, uh, either with direct bribes or promise of future bribes, uh, that uh, the Western intelligence agents said, you know, played this played into their thesis about Russia. Oh, look, there's trouble. Here's this guy that's real popular, according to social media. A lot of these idiots think social media is an honest metric of domestic popularity. I mean, that's why they're on Twitter all the time. A lot of these, uh, particularly a lot of your, uh, and on Reddit, you know, the, the, the Redditors who are leading the war effort for Ukraine uh, are some of, the, some of the most insane uh, group out there. <coughs> that, that in their minds, some, some CIA guys, uh, you know, some uh, Yale affirmative action recipients, but it was called legacy admissions rather than the other form of affirmative actions in the Ivy League. Uh, you know, that when you're really, really dumb, but your granddaddy went to Yale and you get in, that kind of person sitting in a high ranking position uh, at the CIA. There's only two statutes to Nathan Hale in America. One of them sits at the Langley and the other one sits at the uh, old campus at Yale University uh, that, that said, oh, look, this is our opportunity. So we're going to go over and offer a big bribe. We're going to, you know, this is a billionaire oligarch who's got political connections. You know, if we were to do the Our Man in Havana, Graham Greene version of the story or the Jean Le Carré, uh, Taylor of Panama, uh, where, you know, Pierce Brosnan plays the film version of the story. You know, they build up a big narrative. You know, they, they, got, they got slush fund after slush fund. I mean, so much that we just lose $6 billion, you know, just a rounding error over at the Pentagon. They don't know what happened to it. That was supposed to go to Ukraine. Maybe it did. Maybe it, and some of it's in uh, Prigozhin's hands somewhere or his other commander's hands or others uh, whispering. What's the possibility or probability of U.S. intelligence agency complicity? And was, what I can't say is the U.S. media was leaking stories after this happened that the U.S. intelligence agencies had briefed members of Congress weeks before mm-hmm. saying this coup plot was coming. The coup mm-hmm. plan was coming. Now, there's always the possibility that they're covering their rears uh, and that they were trying to say, well, hey, we, you know, we're really ahead of the curve. It's not like 1989 when we had no idea. Uh, the other thing, the Russia House book and movie were about that, you know, they thought Russia was great and strong when the Soviet Union was, in fact, falling apart within its own armor. Um, but, you know, they thought they were this great threat that it turned out not so much that, no, no, they were fully on top of, you know, what's going on. Maybe that's part of their narrative or maybe it's just. They knew in advance because they were planning it in advance. What do you think the possibilities are, uh, Alexander, uh, of U.S. or British or Western complicity in all of this coming about? I think they're quite high. In fact, I I would my own personal view is that there was some involvement. Now, exactly how it worked is is difficult to say. And it may be the case. And it's, in fact, quite likely the case that. CIA, MI6, whoever it was, wasn't directly in contact with Prigozhin. They might have reached him through intermediaries. And two intermediaries immediately stand out. One is the oligarchs in London, of whom there are many, and many of whom have very strong connections with British intelligence. And it's entirely plausible that Prigozhin is in contact with some of those people. And I think it is now fairly well established that at some time around February, Prigozhin did have some contacts with Ukrainian intelligence. It's not entirely clear what that was all about. And it was, however, leaked to the Wall Street Journal. 
interesting that it came out there, but he does seem to have had some kind of contacts with Ukrainian intelligence. He was apparently trying to get them to um, slacken off their efforts in Bakhmut and was making some kind of offer to give them information about other Russian military formations. At least that was the story. But it does seem that there were some sort of contacts. And when Prigozhin, when this was all announced, Prigozhin, instead of denying the story, he, he basically laughed it off, which at the time, I have to say, I found rather odd. So he did have these contacts with Ukrainian intelligence. It's likely, quite possible, plausible that he had with oligarchs in Britain as well. There's, there's a number of things that make me feel that there was someone, as Alex said, whispering into his ear, and that this probably was not unknown, if I can put it like that, in Langley and in MI6 on that hulking building on the Thames, which we all know about from the James Bond films. And there's a number of things. Firstly, exactly the point that you made, that... Um, the CIA comes along, the US intelligence comes along and tells us, well, we knew this was all going to happen. We briefing Congress. Well, how did they know it was going to happen? I mean, the most simple way that they would know it was happening was because they had some role in it. And the fact that William Burns is telephoning Narishkin and Biden is saying we have nothing to do with it. Well, there is this expression we have in England again it does look like they're protesting a little too much. So, I mean, that's the first thing to say. The second is, and this is in Britain, I have been reading article after article, going back all the way to January, March time, predicting that Prigozhin would launch some kind of a coup or some kind of coup attempt, that um, Russia would collapse into... Uh, um, a system of competing warlords, of whom Prigozhin was one. All these stories that all seem to be looking forward to what actually did happen on the 23rd of June. And this all goes all the way back, as I said, all those uh, months and weeks. Now, was it that these people were analysing events brilliantly and were able to foresee it from you know Prigozhin's major statements that he would do that I hardly think so I think that it must have come because the British were getting word that Prigozhin was becoming increasingly uh, unstable disaffected they were probably feeding him ideas and thoughts and that they knew that at some point something would come and then there's the third thing, which for me is perhaps the most important giveaway of all, which is the day before he started his, let's call it his coup, his mutiny. He made a whole series of videos, which he broadcast on his Telegram channel, and they were completely off the scale. I mean, the, the abuse and the criticism of the Russian military that he was making was just off the scale. But he was also saying some things about the origin of the war. And he said, first of all, that there was no real rebellion in the Donbass in 2014. This was all cooked up by the Russian defense ministry, that Ukraine had no intention in February 2022 of trying to reoccupy Donbass by force. 
that the whole thing was set up by the Russian Defence Ministry because they wanted to plunder Donbass for their own corrupt purposes. And Shoigu himself wanted to have himself made a marshal. Now, that is, in effect, accepting a Ukrainian narrative. It totally goes against the entire reason for the war that Putin gave in February of last year. I mean, it, it contradicts it diametrically. And I can't quite believe that Prigozhin would have said all of that or come to those kind of views by himself. Again, I can't help but think that he was being fed these ideas by people in Ukraine and in the West. So I think it is likely that there was an outside involvement. The Russian, the Russians have not said that there was, but they're saying they're still looking into it. We'll just have to see what they come up with. Yeah, you know, Alex, if uh, you were Jack Ryan, they got the, the, the new Jack Ryan <laughs> season out there on, uh, on Amazon. And you could see the kind of script that would be pitched here, right? Like they'd say, you know, we got a guy who's a Russian oligarch who's known Putin, Putin for decades, who's got connections to Russian organized crime, who's got who's got his own private elite military unit, who's on the front lines, who we can build up a social media campaign for him. You know, he's got connections to the, He always wanted to be a Hollywood star anyway in his own little Russian film, film industry he had going. We got the perfect cutout. Uh, for a Western coup against the corrupt Putin regime. And we can make him look like a patriotic military hero when he goes in and takes over as the people will rally to his cause, like George W. Bush thought with Iraq. You know, the people would see the American flag and bow before it instead of bowing before Allah. And, that you know, that, that they just can't wait for this evil tyrant authoritarian Putin to be thrown out and the restoration of liberty uh, to Russia in this idealized, romanticized version for which Prigozhin is the perfect cutout, for which at a minimum you could like Taylor of Panama or our man in Havana for Graham Greene, both of whom got their book ideas from real lived experience, get a nice big fat check. Maybe you keep a piece of it yourself. Who knows? Uh, maybe that's where that $6.2 billion disappeared to, as the popular meme likes to, likes to <laughs> circulate. Uh, can you imagine that being part of a pitch that would be persuasive given what we know about the approach of Western intelligence agencies over time, from Pinochet to Mugabe and others. I mean, it was the, you could argue the greatest success of Western intelligence in the last century, if you want to call it a success, has been overthrowing governments using military juntas. Um, what do, what do you, can you imagine this them being neck deep in all of this? And part of the reason for them being a little bit reluctant to get into much detail about what really went on in the buildup. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Blinken, he actually put out uh, a communique to all of the, uh, the diplomatic corps in the United States when all of this went down. And he was like, I don't want anybody in any embassy anywhere in the world to talk about this. If they ask you, if anyone asks you about Prigozhin and Wagner, don't say a word. When, when Blinken sent that out, I was like, huh. Why is, he, why is he trying to make sure, ordering everybody in the State Department to keep their mouths shut? Obviously, he's worried about some sort of, uh, of leakage, perhaps something coming out that would implicate the, uh, the State Department. But, you know, there's something else, Robert, that, that really has irked me from the beginning of this, uh, this incident. And it has to do with Prigozhin's involvement in the Internet Research Agency. 
And not many people talk about the IRA, which was involved in Russian election meddling. This, uh, this troll farm was actually called Prigozhin's Troll Factory. And in February 2023, Prigozhin actually came out with a statement saying, not only did I, uh, did I finance the Internet Research Agency, I ran the whole thing from top to bottom. I managed it. I administered it. I organized it. I hired everybody. I am the man who was running the entire Internet troll farm that was uh, headquartered in St. Petersburg. So when I think about this type of business, there must have been U.S. deep state contacts between Prigozhin and uh, this Internet Research Agency. There must have been some sort of communication and some sort of contact with Prigozhin via this IRA. There had to have been. I, I can't envision someone running this type of business without having some sort of pipeline, not only to the big tech social media companies, but behind the big tech social media companies, you have the deep state. So I think there must be some sort of, uh, of whispers, maybe something even more overt than whispers via the Internet Research Agency. And I think that's how they started to really identify Prigozhin as someone who could possibly get the, uh, the regime change of Putin, which is the, the main goal of this entire conflict to begin with. So there's something there, <laughs> Robert Alexander. I haven't been yeah. able to quite yeah. work it completely out, but you, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a coincidence that the election meddling, Trump, the Russian uh, trolls that, uh, that were meddling in the election, Prigozhin, Putin's chef, and then you have this, uh, this attempted regime change against, uh, against Putin. Something, something is there, but I, I, I just can't quite work out the, the connections that connect all the dots. There are definitely many dots worthy of connection, which leads us to our fourth alternative hypothesis yeah. tonight, of which the top three can still be incorporated into, or yeah. some version there, uh, thereof, yeah. which is that at least some part of this, maybe the entire thing, or maybe just the reason why Putin let it play out, and it was one or two or three or some combination thereof is true, but Putin let it play out for this reason, yeah. which was that there was some aspect of this that was a little Maskarovka. Uh, for those that don't know, Maskarovka is the idea that is critically taught in Russian military for over a century. That, uh, but you know, you can go back to Sun Tzu and others. Sun Tzu said, you know, feign chaos to induce your opponent to make a mistake playing on that chaos, um, and that in this case, that this was a little bit of uh, 3D uh, chess at some aspect by a man who arguably has been the master of it in this hypothesis. Uh, for the better part of two decades. This is, after all, a leader who managed to not only defeat his own deep state at the time he came into power, as uh, Alexander was mentioning at the top of the show, and managed to maneuver through it, despite many obstacles along the way, but managed to defeat the global deep state for two decades. The likes of George Soros, the likes of MI6, the likes of the EU, the likes of NATO, the likes of uh, the U.S. and the CIA, uh, the likes of opposition within and without, and has managed to get through it for multiple decades, stay in a position of power, maintain that power, take on his own oligarchs, replace them with a new set of oligarchs, 
uh, maneuver through all of this in ways that people at much lower scale in smaller states have been unsuccessful and unavailing in doing. So in this view of Putin, he is a mastermind strategist who knows how to play a little Russian Maskarovka to get what he wants. And in this version of events, we have some historical analog, indeed, a young, young 16-year-old Vladimir Putin there in St. Petersburg could have seen the most popular miniseries at the time on Soviet TV that was based on the famous Operation Trust. For those that don't know, Operation Trust was the brilliant plan by the Bolsheviks right after they had won the Russian white, the red white civil war mentioned by Putin, as Alexander mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, that as part of the grounds to resist what was occurring for the Russian people to object to any coup attempt, direct or indirect, it may be, noting that what happened was that the Russian empire fell apart because of that, and the Russian population paid the biggest price. It was an interesting shot at the Bolsheviks, because they were the ones who signed that peace deal. Uh, and of course, what he didn't highlight, but those that knew their history would know, one of the big regions they lost during that time frame was, of course, Ukraine itself. Yeah. Um, but it caused them major problems and loss of access to resources, loss of access to food, which after the end of the red-white Russian Civil War, they were in a very vulnerable position that what would happen if the whites who are now refugees, over a million of them, mm -hmm. spread throughout Europe and in parts of Asia, got China or Japan or Germany or France or Britain or the U.S. to side with them uh, and go back into Russia? Could they crush then the Bolshevik Revolution? So how to handle that? They needed to get control over the Western intelligence agencies' information sources. They needed to get control over these refugees, particularly their military and political leadership cast. Mm -hmm. They also needed to get control of their own internal sleeper agents left behind by the whites and the Russian bureaucracy and Russian society. How to do that? Well, the Bolsheviks came up with the idea they were going to create the resistance. And indeed, they did. And they, it was called Operation Trust, quite ironically. The lead agent was identified by the, the nickname Trust. And what it is is they flipped mm. actual sleeper agents. They didn't put it in their own sleeper. They flipped them. They figured out who was, a, uh, uh, was really on the, on the white side, on the anti-Bolshevik side, found them, you know, you know, uh, motivated them, you might say, sometimes, you know, a little three-week vacation, uh, and to, to play a role. And the role would be to create a fake organization, a fake monar uh, monarchist uh, organization uh, that would then control what information was given to Western intelligence, what information was given and gotten from the Russian refugees, the white refugees. And it was ordered to induce both sides to not militarily intervene, to not uh, uh, join together in a, an aggressive effort, to, for the most part, not directly come back in, other than one MI, uh, one British agent that they, I think an MI6 agent, that they actually induced to come and, and then assassinated on the Finnish, Finland border and then covered it up because he was payback time because of a personal vendetta, the head of the Cheka. Uh, and it worked fantastically because, in fact, the Russian, the Bolsheviks were very vulnerable to exactly that kind of attack mm -hmm. they were able to preclude mm -hmm. by running the opposition themselves. And in this version of events, uh, what happens is you have two versions, either A, Prigozhin, the longtime friend, longtime ally, longtime associate, longtime affiliate of Putin. Uh, it plays the role of a Colonel Kurtz, plays the role of a Douglas MacArthur to smoke out 
the sources of Western opposition, their means that they would use to over try to overthrow Putin uh, and and cause internal dissension, to try to smoke out who within the Russian military is a risk and a threat, who within the Russian political system, the Russian security system. The idea here is that he needed to stress test his own government and society while he had the most control over that stress test. That now, and that in order for that stress test to be successful, though, he had to run a high risk gamble. It had to look persuasive because if people thought it was fake, then he wouldn't smoke out the Western agencies and their plans and their in their sleeper agents and others and their methods and modus operandi. He wouldn't smoke out who within his own government, who within his own military, who within the political system, who within the press, who within the public, Russian public was a vulnerability for him, would flip for him or not stand by him. Uh, he So it needed to be real persuasive, the gamble being that, of course, it may backfire. Maybe all of a sudden these people come out and they do take you out in the process. But if you're really worried that that is a risk, you would much rather that risk take place while you have control, as much control as you possibly can over it. And he's seeing the West say over and over and over again, they're going to overthrow them. They're going to overthrow them. They're going to use the Ukrainian conflict to do regime change. And their first method to do so in economic war backfired and failed. So now he's got to worry is what's plan B to overthrow him. And let's stress test the system in such a way that he comes out of it looking stronger, unifying the people, uh, smoking out any difficult issues. Maybe that's why a couple of people are haven't been seen in a week. Maybe not. We don't know. Um, but to to figure out who was a risk point, what was his vulnerability? And as a stress test, it worked quite extraordinarily for Putin in the sense that the public did rally to him. The, even his own opponent of high-profile public figures and parties opposing to him rallied to him right away. Key leaders in foreign countries showed who they were, who rallied to him, who didn't. The Erdogans of the world, the Xi's of the world, and others who maybe a little, and the Lukashenko's of the world. And in this context, Lukashenko plays the script, and Prigozhin plays a role, maybe intended, maybe unintended. The intended theory would focus on the fact that he did Hollywood films and his connection to Putin and that all of his behavior seems very unlike pre-Bakhmut Prigozhin. The other side is that he just went nuts and Putin just took advantage of it and that that would explain why he doesn't intervene sooner, why he doesn't shut this down quicker, is that he looks at this and says, I'm willing to play a gamble. And with a man who's been high success, highly successful as Alexander was mentioning at the beginning of the show, he'd been taking gambles from the day he stepped into office, and he kept managing to survive, keep managing to even ultimately thrive in, in those gambles. And that if you're going to do a stress test of your system and you're really worried about it, the fact that it looks so persuasive to all of us means it's a really, doesn't mean it didn't happen. Usually that means it's really well executed. <laughs> that would be the alternative theory of this little mascarovka that, he did his own version of Operation Trust, the sequel, in live time for all of us to witness. The, probably the most strongest evidence in favor of this interpretation is what many people around the world saw as the peculiar conclusion to the coup, mm -hmm. that there was no ultimate attack on Wagner troops, that uh, Prigozhin was allowed to retire <coughs> to, uh, to Belarus, that the Wagner troops were all that were part of this mutiny, this what he called earlier in the day a 1917-style mutiny, uh, shot heard around the world in St. Petersburg kind of mutiny. By the end of the day, he's letting them all travel to Belarus, all amnesty, all, all things forgiven. That led some to suspect 
that maybe this was a play to smoke out his enemies, his adversaries, his vulnerabilities, and to fully defeat and impregnate himself against uh, a uh, the regime change coup efforts of the West and problems within the system. Uh, your thoughts on uh, on that yeah. possibility? Let, let, let's first talk about the trust because the trust is one of the most uh, brilliantly successful intelligence operations of the 20th century. It's far too little known about um, in historical terms. It was basically set up by three people. Lenin, who was, of course, the leader of the Soviet government at that time, Felix Dzerzhinsky, who was the head of the Cheka, and a man called Terlison, who is completely forgotten nowadays, who was in charge of the, uh, of the foreign um, division of the Cheka. The Cheka began as an internal security agency during the Russian Revolution and the Civil War, very ruthless one. But in 1918, it established an external, uh, 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 an office that dealt with external intelligence, and that evolved into the first directorate of what came to be the KGB, and it eventually evolved also, and that evolved, of course, into the SVR, which is Russia's current premier intelligence agency. So, you know, that, that gives you some of the lineage, some of the history of who it was who set up this thing. And it was brilliant. And as you absolutely rightly say, Robert, it eventually came about that by the mid to late 1920s, the white opposition to the Bolshevik government in Russia, the white opposition, not just in Russia, but also in the West, in Europe as well, was essentially run by the Bolshevik government. I mean, they were running the opposition against themselves. And it was working extraordinarily well because, you know, the whites would send agents into Russia. Those agents would be turned or they would be arrested or whatever it was. And everybody, everybody thought that there was this enormous white opposition. They didn't understand who was actually running it. Now, this is a legacy. This, this period of the trust is a legacy of a particular period in Russian history, which basically starts from about the 1880s, when the um, revolutionary parties, which, of course, included all of the three people I've just mentioned, Lenin and Dzerzhinsky, uh, were in conflict with the Tsar's own security agencies, the organization known as the Okhranka. And the Okhranka operated a strategy known as provocation tactics in which it tried to infiltrate the Russian revolutionary movement. And the Russian revolutionaries countered by launching counter infiltration of the Okhranka. So it became very difficult to know who was controlling whom and this continued right up until 1917. And Lenin, who had been a master of this kind of thing, is a little bit like Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro was very good at this kind of style of operating this kind of intelligence, you know, cloak and dagger sort of thing. Lenin, who was you know, deeply experienced and very skilled at it, he continued with Dzerzhinsky. Uh, with they continued doing it after the revolution. 
and they set up the trust and they did that. Now, what happened was Lenin dies, Dzerzhinsky uh, um, continues, Joseph Stalin takes over, Stalin looks at this, he says, I don't like this. This isn't my idea of what we should be doing at all. I don't like having uh, um, an organization that's in opposition to my own government. And eventually, basically, he decides to close it down. And that was the end of the trust. Now, since then, since the end of that revolutionary period, Russian, so first Soviet and Russian intelligence agencies have tended to be very, very wary of provocation tactics. And the reason for that is that there is this widespread sense within Russia today, amongst the security and intelligence agencies, that the Okranka, the Tsar's intelligence agency that had been running these things, eventually lost control and that operating these kind of fake oppositions created so much confusion and destabilization within the system that it ultimately contributed to the collapse of the Tsar's government. So there is this feeling that unless you are a genius at it, like Lenin was, you shouldn't really try to do it. And as a result, basically since the 1920s, it hasn't been done by the Russians since. Now, my own reading of Putin is that he's actually quite a risk-averse person. He's worked incredibly hard since he became Russia's leader in this very difficult period of turmoil that I've discussed uh, at the end of the 1990s and the early 2000s to bring back stability to the country. I think that the very last thing he would want to do is to create instability in Russia by, in effect, inciting even a fake coup against himself. I think what he would much prefer to do, and remember he's worked within the FSB, the counterintelligence agency, he was himself an intelligence officer. What I think he'd much prefer to do is find out who he's, opponents were, who they were, and basically arrest them and prosecute them. In other words, go about it in a straightforward way. And I don't think that this is the sort of thing, the kind of gambit that would appeal to him. Now, I was watching Putin very closely during this whole affair. Two things came across to me. Firstly, that he was extremely angry that this thing had happened. And I thought that was very clear in his, in his initial speech. And the second thing is that what a lot of people see as evidence that this was a Maskirovka exercise, which is the way in which Prigozhin was allowed to go to Belarus and take some of his people with him. In my opinion, it was the opposite. It was a sign of Putin being most anxious to restore stability to the country as soon as possible and to avoid any appearance of civil war. There'd been a battle on the outskirts of Moscow. It, there'd been a battle in Rostov. Yes, the security forces would have won and they would have won very quickly. But Russians would have been fighting Russians. 
There would have been bloodshed on the streets. That would have been a very, very bad call in Russia itself, where it would have made people feel that the situation looked extremely unstable. It would have been a disaster internationally. Modi, Erdogan, Raisi, Xi Jinping, all of them would have been saying to themselves, what is going on in Russia? It might not have gone down well with the Russian military either, who would not have liked to be used in an internal security role. So he acted very quickly and very decisively to defuse the situation. He put Prigozhin in a no-win position. He had the troops there in Rostov. He had the troops in front of him in Moscow. He'd isolated and marginalized Prigozhin completely. He gave a broadcast which basically said to the entire bureaucracy, the entire uh, whole of society, anybody who supports this man is participating in an act of treason. That put Prigozhin in a no-win situation. Lukashenko is then wheeled out. Lukashenko tells Prigozhin, look, for God's sake, man, you're, all you're going to do is get yourself killed. And it's not going to be a good look for you. And it's not going to be good for Russia. Why don't you quietly agree to go to Belarus and call the whole thing off? And at that point, I think Putin agreed, because better get Prigozhin out of the way in Belarus with his people there than risk bloodshed in Russia. So I think I described it before as a very tough-minded cost-benefit calculation. Putin putting aside his anger, whatever feelings of revenge he needed, in order to preserve stability within Russia. The fact that the entire political system, the entire military and security establishment, and the population rallied to Putin, meant that Putin's position was so strong that he didn't need to resort to these violent methods to assert control. And I think he decided that not only did he not need to do them, but it would be counterproductive for him to do them. So that's my view. I think I, I, I don't go along with the Maskirovka thing. I think that much more likely it was a combination of Prigozhin's vanities, his insecurities, his paranoia, his megalomania, his feelings of madness, the whispers in his ears from you know, unfriendly actors that Alex talked about, unfriendly actors, most of them probably in the West, the, sent, the Prigozhin's miscalculations, his reading of all the resentments that do exist within the military and within Russian society, all of that coming together, exploding in this way. But I don't think that it was something that Putin planned or organized or welcomed at all. That is my view. The uh, 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 Alex, uh, for sort of the last question, we'll go back to the very first topic to sort of wrap this up. The uh, the other components of this theory basically highlight that uh, uh, Putin was taking advantage of the West misunderstandings of him and hoping that others' misunderstandings would out them and smoke them out. The idea is they think he's weak, they think the country's chaotic, think the country's corrupt. He'll play on their own incompetency and ineptitude to smoke them out and prove to the domestic population key allies that, in fact, a real stress test will prove he's as invulnerable as possibly can be done. 
the hypothesis in favor of the, the fourth alternative uh, would basically parallel MacArthur, going back to our first uh, topic. Whereas MacArthur, uh, the reason why there is a South Korea uh, rather than just all North Korea is uh, MacArthur asked his military commander, he goes, you know, how do the North Koreans and the Chinese perceive me? Well, they perceive you as a very rational, very smart, very strong, very disciplined, very well-planned out guy. You're the guy that would rather use nuclear weapons than go into Japan and cost your men, uh, cost your, your men. So you, won't, you wouldn't do anything crazy. And so then MacArthur said, okay, well, what would be the craziest way to attack the North Koreans? And his commander said it would be doing this thing here, you know, this kind of landing at this particular location, at this particular time, and going in these troops. And so MacArthur said, that's what we're going to do. The reason was MacArthur had properly read the North Koreans that that would be the one place they would leave unguarded because only an idiot would go there. Only an insane man would go there, which is what actually afforded it the opportunity in the first place. So assuming, this is just assuming, if this ever comes out that there was some aspect of this that was Maskarovka, where, Alex, would you rank it in modern eras as one of the greatest ever? <laughs> if, if this was Maskarovka, this would yeah, be if, the greatest. Yeah, that. this would be the greatest ever. But I think there is an aspect of Maskarovka. And I think Alexander uh, hinted at it and you hinted at it, which I think is the second part. I would not be surprised if, and it may not even have been Putin, Maybe it was some of his uh, his intel officials. Maybe it was it was someone in the Security Council. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if if somewhere along the way, maybe two months ago, someone in the Kremlin got wind of of Prigozhin's contacts with with maybe the West or maybe people in Ukraine or, or maybe oligarchs, and they just kind of said, you know, let's. Let's let this guy go a little bit. Give him, give him a little bit of a, of a loose leash. Let him put up his social media posts. Let's monitor him a bit. And let's see where he leads us to. And then I can definitely see how this may have gotten a little bit out of hand. Maybe they should have reined him in much earlier. Maybe they didn't expect him to, to, to flip out when he did. I could definitely see something like that taking place. Since we've been talking about movies and movie themes, I could see something like uh, No Way Out with Kevin Costner. You know, they're looking for Yuri in the, uh, in the Pentagon. And, and I can definitely see that there are some officials saying, you know, okay, we, we know Prigozhin. We understand this guy. We've been, we've been monitoring this guy. He's been uh, working with us for so many years or, or so many decades. But something has changed in his attitude He's saying some really crazy stuff, but you know, let's not let's not take him into custody just yet. Mm. Maybe he's going to lead us to someone or to something, and maybe they 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 just mistimed it. And, and this may have not even involved Putin. I mean, Putin may have just been briefed on what's going on. Maybe some of his officials said, "Yeah, yeah, we've got our eyes on Prigozhin. Don't worry about it." He may put up some crazy stuff on social media, but it's not going to harm us too much. We're we're keeping a close eye on him. When the time comes, we'll uh, we'll rein him in, and maybe they they just uh, missed the missed the timing on all of this. So I can definitely see some Maskerovka there, but uh, the fact that 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 people were uh, were killed in this in yeah. this event, the fact that it risked the destabilization the destabilization of Russia during a time of conflict, I think would have been too much of a risk. For uh, for Putin, the man, and Putin, his his close circle of uh, of government, 
uh, advisors and officials to to have taken. Uh, and, and I think a lot of the the, the Maskerovka stems from from the Belarus deal, because I think a lot of people see the Belarus deal not so much as benefiting Wagner or Prigozhin, but as a way for Putin to position the military on top of Kiev and then lead to some sort of big, big arrow lightning strike down towards Kiev. And, and, and I think it's this desire, especially from the hardliners, going back to the hardliners, mm. this desire of ending this conflict quickly and, and a lot of people saying, okay, so that's how he's going to do it. He created this Maskirovka. He's got the troops now in place, including Wagner, and now they're going to make their move uh, down south. Because the other alternative is that the strategy is indeed a slow grind, and we shouldn't expect a big move anytime soon. Not that it might not happen. It probably will happen, but in the next month or two or three, we should probably just expect the Russians to go about business as usual. It's been working. They've been grinding down the Ukraine military. And if Putin really wanted to move troops to Belarus, he didn't need to do all of this to, to move the troops to Belarus. So I think yeah. a lot of the, 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 the big Maskarovka yeah. stems from the fact that a lot of people are hoping that this Wagner uh, contingent will be the, the, the tip of the spear that's, that moves down towards towards Kiev. But I definitely agree with you, Robert, and I agree with what Alexander was saying, that there must have been some sort of indication in the Kremlin mm. that this guy is up to something or something's not mm. right. Let's let's see where where he leads us to. Let's see how this plays out. And maybe maybe there'll be some other mm. countries or Western mm. Intel or oligarchs that are mixed up in this yeah. uh, in this intrigue. Mm. Yeah, I, I think either way. So, in my final comment uh, on the fourth thesis and hypotheses, uh, the I have a hush hush up about it uh, right after it happened uh, at vivabarnslock.locals.com. So people can see uh, uh, the diff You know, I, I broached some of those topics when we knew a little bit uh, less, but that were a lot of fun. My own my own take on it all, as you know, where I lean in different directions, what might have been, what could have been. Uh, is that either way, whether he intended it or it was exactly the opposite of what he intended, the net what we witnessed in live time is that the Western interpretation of Russia and Putin is completely wrong. And that Putin is now stronger than he was before it occurred. Because now anybody in Russia who thought they had support within the police, support within the secret police, support within the security state, support within the intelligence agencies, support within the bureaucracy, support within the military, or support within the Russian public, or support within the Russian uh, soldiers, discovered there ain't no such thing. Because even the guy who was portrayed as potentially having, as being the most po you know most popular version of that kind of rebellion, if there was such a rebellious overthrow regime change instinct, was Prigozhin uh, over the, in the months leading up. And he got no support. You had ordinary, everyday Russians out on the street in Rostov, unarmed, cussing at Wagner, after, Wagner soldiers after Putin gave his speech. Uh, not the kind of behavior of a populist that would uh, be willing to risk their lives if they want regime change in Moscow. The only real question left is if the, the, real, the stress test occurred whether intended or exactly the opposite mm -hmm. of intentions, for the reasons you guys mentioned, 
Uh, the net effect is that Putin passed with flying colors and the Western intelligence agencies failed as embarrassingly as the fall of the Soviet Union. I think that is absolutely correct. I think that is entirely right. Not only did Putin handle this extremely well, I mean, so well that I think that's what one of the things that's lent force to this Maskirovka hypothesis. But, you know, bear in mind, he's an extremely clever, very experienced man. He knows what to do in these situations. And it's entirely likely, by the way, that, you know, people in the Kremlin have been saying, look, Prigozhin is going mad, that there was some contingency planning in case he did go mad and did do something like this. But regardless of that, there is no doubt at all that what has happened is that it has strengthened Putin's position within the system. It has demonstrated its underlying stability and Putin's central role in it. And the latest opinion polls, by the way, now put his popularity at 90%. <laughs> and that's, that's, I mean, it actually surged. It, it's actually increased. So, you know, it was running at around, you know, he's around 80% just before. <laughs> it's been higher since the war. And now it's gone up even further. So that, that gives you some idea I mean, of how solid his position in Russia has become. And why wouldn't it be solid? The war is going well. The economy is growing. We've had a meeting in the Kremlin today. They've been talking about economics. Growth is expected to uh, be in excess of 2% this year. That may not sound a lot, but bear in mind, all prices are falling. Um, the country is under sanctions. Once upon a time, it would have been inconceivable that Russia's economy could grow against a background of falling oil prices. And yet this year, it seems it is going to be achieving that. So living standards are rising. And as I said, the war is going well. So, of course, his position is solid. And the result of this affair is it's become solider still. He isn't going anywhere. And I think the faster people in the West finally grasp this fact, understand this, the better for the West it will be. The, the, Putin is, in terms of Russia at the moment, the only, go, the only game in town. I mean, at some, some point, at some future point, but it will be when he chooses to, not when the West or oligarchs in London or oligarchs in Switzerland or people like Prigozhin want him to. Perfect. Fantastic. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. What, 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 what did the chat think? Do you guys like this, uh, this show chat? Plus one. If you like this show, let us know. Robert, that was uh, fantastic. Alexander, that was yeah. great. Uh, what do you guys say? We wrap this up. We have a lot of questions. We'll answer all the questions yeah, well, in a dedicated uh, live show. A lot of great questions, great comments as well as we were uh, talking about the different scenarios, a lot of plus ones. Awesome. Awesome. Let's wrap this up. Where can people find the great Robert Barnes? Oh, yeah, they can find all the content, including of our above average board members, second only to the Duran.locals.com at Viva Barnes Law. Dot locals .com. 
That link is in the description box down below, and it will be as a pinned comment as well. Thank you to our moderators. Thank you to everyone that watched us on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, thedurant.locals.com, and YouTube as well as Telegram. Robert, Alexander, any final thoughts? And then we can wrap up this video. Uh, it's been an extraordinary period of time in Russian history. This is going to be this affair is going to be remembered, actually. And um, the important conclusion to draw from it is the is the last one, is the one that Robert uh, said. The West doesn't get Russia. I mean, if their assumption, and I wonder whether perhaps the entire assumption behind the Ukrainian offensive was that Prigozhin was going to do something and this would cause the entire house of cards to collapse. I mean, you know, I, I, it, they'd been talking about this, you know, that the Russian leadership would be paralyzed and would be um, um, panic. Remember, there was an article, I think it was in Foreign Policy, that said exactly this, that... The Ukrainians would break through in one day because the entire Russian leadership would panic and would be paralyzed. This is completely wrong. It isn't going to happen. And the sooner people, as I said, understand that, the better it will be for them. And um, as for the war itself, well, we see again how completely the West misunderstood that war. And as for the state of the economy of Russia, they misunderstood that too. And as for the political system, well, what this affair has done shows that they've always misunderstood that also. So the United States, the West needs new intelligence services, or at least uh, are completely reorganized ones. And it's high time they got some people out there who actually took an interest, a proper interest and a proper understanding of the country that they were studying. Yes. And ideally, before we end up in nuclear Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Take care, everybody.